Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heineken. Heineken Original Lager is made with pure malt and their famous A-yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Fall is here. You know, some of the fall sports are back. I was watching football on Sunday, and I was enjoying it with an ice-cold Heineken. It's just great to go from, from summer where you're just watching... I was watching some Champions League. I was watching a little bit of baseball. I was watching hoops when they first came back. But it was my summer beer of choice, and now it's my fall beer of choice. Pick up a pack or have it delivered today and drink responsibly. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, as always, it's Andrew we're keeping it loose today, but you really put some you put some mustard into that. Well, I, if I don't have a joke, yeah, that I just I, I feel like the need to emphasize your name, Chris. If we can't laugh anymore, who are we? <laughs> I don't know. What man. have we become? You're the one who won't watch Ted Lasso, Andy. If you wanted to laugh, I don't know how you could do better than Jason Sudeikis abroad. Have you noticed how much the people around you have been like, "Damn, dude, you really underrated Lasso." You mean? Our social media presence groups? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Look, <laughs> I'm not saying that our fans are wrong because clearly... Can I ask you, do you have some, the wait. Sturgis bike rally outside of your window? Why is it that there always sounds like there is just like a, a motorcycle rally like outside of your window? Well, Sturgis didn't work out so well, as you remember. So what I did as a friend of the biking community <laughs> as was a I said, anarchy? Let, let's go back to mine. <laughs> As a okay. true son of anarchy. <laughs> uh, I apologize for the audio fidelity. Um, I just wanted to say, though, regarding Mr. Lasso. Yeah, and um, we're going to have I'm, Bill Lawrence on the show next week, uh, by the way, right before the finale. I'm not unaware of the groundswell of support that mm-hmm. this show has engendered among our fans. And I don't want to besmirch them in any way because they have sterling taste in, in, in podcasts. Yeah, that's true. However, you know, I'm not the first to say that Facebook is notoriously a hub of disinformation. You are you know? the first to say it. Yeah, I've not, I've not heard that before. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just trying to, what I'm trying to do, Chris, is I'm just trying to get my news and my television recommendations from like unbiased sources, you know, not, not the lamestream media. That's Remember just when you would be like, I'm off Twitter and I would have to tell you about like what was popping off online? I want to revisit that too. You didn't have to. You asked. That was just. You would be like, "What's going on?" And I'd be like, "Well, this 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 North Dakota State's Attorney General certainly stepped in it today." My guy in South Dakota keeps revising his story. Yeah, when was that recent? No, that was was that just that just happened with this the guy who's like, by the way, yeah, yeah, it was like it was like a week or two ago where the Attorney General of the State of South Dakota called a hastily called a news conference and was like, "Many of you are asking questions about the deer I hit last night on a dark road." I would like to amend my previous statement that it was a deer. <laughs> it was not a deer. Oh, so, man. I look, that's just friendship, Chris. That's just friendship because you knew that I was making the right choice 
and part of your supporting me. I mean, actually, it's kind of funny. If you consider social media to be a debilitating uh, addiction, yeah, that I is do. ruining people's <laughs> lives, which I do, the equivalent of this is me calling you while you're at a bar and saying, Chris, do five shots for me and tell me how you feel. <laughs> Yeah. Which would have been, would you, you would have done that for me like certain years at the beginning You've of the century. You've been around me when I've taken multiple shots. We both know how that ends. <laughs> Listeners, it doesn't end well. It does for, not was end it, well. I, I just like, I mean, one of my, one of my earliest relation, mm-hmm. moments with Andy, I think in a social mm-hmm. capacity was when I visited him at, at the University of Brown. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Sports powerhouse of the Ivy, yeah. I think, what were we drinking that night? Alcohol. Yeah, but like, was it like scotch? Was it like something? Was it what, what did we? What were we doing shots of? Or was I, I doing think shots that, of? That, thank you. I was gonna. I was gonna make a small line edit. Yeah, I, w- Someone, I was twenty, probably. Yeah, yeah. And I just like you know when I get really drunk, I need to feel the cold floor of the bathroom with few. I was, as few. Yeah, and I need to get. I need. Yeah, I just need to lie down. If you want to share this, we could share it. It's Not just really. that I don't really want to go there. Yeah. We don't have to tell college I, I, stories. I, I, I thought you were going to refer to what I believe was maybe your 23rd birthday at Hi-Fi, which was marked by you being oh my carried God. out of the bar. No, I got obliterated that night. Yeah. They, they were writing my obit in advance. They were like, here lies Chris. You weirdly, you got a you didn't even audition, but you got a callback for the live action film Casper the Friendly Ghost <laughs> due to your pallor. <laughs> As you were carried out into Avenue A, you know, we, you know we're, we're losing <laughs> yeah, ourselves in memories. Glory days. Yeah, I want. Well, so for today's show, uh, here's what we'll be doing. We got. Uh, we're going to talk Kaya a little hit, bit about Kaya. Hit record now. <laughs> Kaya, erase everything else. We're going to do the. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. We have not talked about music in a while on this podcast, but I thought it would be an interesting jumping off point to talk about the act of canon making, which I think mm. you know is. Uh, when you're doing something that's that has the scope of the Rolling Stone list, I think is is an interesting conversation about how we decide what the, the like sort of the most important works are. You're gonna jump in there. Well, also I think it's a great point because I think given the current climate, I think canon making could be useful in defending ourselves and our families <laughs> against rogue militias. So it's good for you to keep things just like keep them. As many 100. ends as you want in there. And then we're also yeah. going to talk a little bit about some some Soder news, some Soderberg news that you can use, and then. Uh, a little bit of discussion about the third day. And then in third day related topics, I was joined yep. by Catherine Waterston uh, from the third day. And she was absolutely awesome to talk to. Although so somewhat cool. secretive about the third day, she talked a lot about making the show and she is in England preparing to do the live performance that's going to be streamed that will link the two sort of halves of the season of the third day. So I hope people are checking the show out because I think it's something pretty special. So let's start though with this, with this albums list. Andy, have you had much time to spend with this? This kind of took over, over the social for like a day or two people kind of arguing about this and talking about what it, you know, I, I can go through the top 20. I, I kind of wanted to talk more about mm-hmm. how I think that when we were growing up, there were lists like this. I mean, Rolling Stone album guy was really important to both of us. Yeah. I think Rolling Stone itself puts out these lists in some capacity fairly often. I think this and was then, last updated like, what, like 10 years ago? Yeah. And then as you and I were kind of in high school, a very important book came out called The Spin Alternative Record Guide, a very important book to us. And that was the first taste I had gotten of a counter 
narrative to mm-hmm. what I assume to be like the assumed, the assumed canon. The, the idea that the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Stones and and Joni Mitchell and and these were the these were the sort of most important records and these were the greatest records and this Zeppelin record and this Pink Floyd record. It was a very classic. Those original Stone lists were very classic rock centric with a lot of nods to important records from Motown and Stax and stuff like that. But for the most part, I felt like they were very classic rock centric. And then the Spin Alternative Record Guide came out. What year was that published? Is that 92, uh, 93? Or was it later than that? No, it was a little later than that. I remember I bought it, I think it was 95, 96, because I was in college. I remember buying it in uh, uh, in Massachusetts when we went down to Boston from, for a week. So the, the, many people, you may not have any idea what, what book we're talking about. This is probably one of the central texts of me and Andy's relationship, <laughs> really if not lives individually, because it essentially was a counter narrative taking in hip hop, punk, world music, um, reggae, like a lot of other kinds of music and leveling them with classic rock, saying that these records have now become as important and if not to, to, the, to younger people, more important than Led Zeppelin Four and Dark Side of the Moon and Revolver and Pet Sounds or what have you. And so that was a huge thing for me. It was a huge thing for me to understand that these things, the canon can be revised. The canon can be... Uh, interrogated, the canon can be uh, questioned. And part of the fun is building it again. Now, I think in the subsequent 25, 30 years since since then, I've had a lot of different stances on that. Like I think now, especially, uh, you, you know, we were, we were being asked to really think about what informs what we consider great work, which is not to say that if I, if I was to make a list like the spin list, I think, or the Rolling Stone list, certainly would have a lot of these records on it. But I think we're being asked to consider like what are some of the, the institutional things that inform, you know, what we consider to be important or good music or great music or classics or masterpieces mm-hmm. and what is in in the past been overlooked and ignored or not properly given its due. So I thought it was very interesting that this Rolling Stone list came out now while that conversation has been happening in so many different mediums, uh, and and to see the results of all that. Yeah, it's it's. It's interesting to watch these lists. Um, well, they obviously diversified themselves in many ways, which is a good thing, but also as the landscape that consumed them diversified so wildly. Um, and to your point, I think the Rolling Stone one, if you grew up liking music, the Rolling Stone lists and special issues were the, were the backbone, the canon, because Rolling mm-hmm. Stone, you know, very confidently, with good reason, was like, we're, we are the magazine that put, you know, everyone from Joni Mitchell to, you mentioned Zeppelin to Allman Brothers on the cover. We have the interviews with them. We have we have the receipts. And now we are going to continue to tell you why they are still the backbone of everything we listen to today. When Spin emerged um, with a counter narrative, it felt more like a binary choice. Either you were one way or another way. And Spin Spin's list was the younger way. And we should shout out people who, you know, we were lucky enough to work with who contributed to that book, which is I think out of print, but is gettable, you know, through used bookstores and things. Right. Like reading reading Rob Sheffield on The Smiths was kind of life-changing. Yeah. You know, there, there, was, there was a joy and a gleefulness, and it was basically taking something that was could have been more secretive and underground and saying, here's how it can change your life actually out in the world. Then there were subsequent lists like Ego Trip would do stuff, I think, a little bit after that that started to introduce hip-hop into the conversation a little bit more. And then for the last few years... Pitchfork picked up the mantle, right, and did these these sweeping, sweeping decade lists of best album of every decade, which I think did enormous, like, archaeological work of 
shining of dusting stuff off, resorting it, putting it back together again, almost in the way that like, remember when we were kids and there were two kinds of dinosaurs and then now, now there's like 600. Found out there and, are a few more. Yeah. And like three of the ones that we thought were dinosaurs were actually three dinosaurs glued together. <laughs> Turns out there's no such thing as a patasaurus or whatever. Um, What's kind of notable, I think, about this list, and, and one of the reasons why we are talking about it, is that it has gone from, much like Rolling Stone's place in the culture has gone from a position of absolute bedrock authority mm -hmm. and prominence to, like many magazines, and certainly many magazines about music, to struggling to still have a, a, a seat at the table or the larger conversation. That instead of feeling top-down authoritarian, like these lists probably felt to the people who were reacting to them, at, at Spin, at Ego Trip, at Pitchfork. When I looked at this list, I actually thought it was kind of sweet and noble and quaint. Because, and, and we should say that it's not just people like our, our good friend John Dolan at Rolling Stone Editorial who put this together. They sent ballots out, almost like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, to a really interesting, uh, and again, diverse in terms of, of age, perspective, career, background, everything, artists. To, to source this list. So yeah. I feel like there's something almost sweet saying like, no, no, look, we're going to try to put all of our arms around this and make the case that the type of popular music that defined two generations, basically, still matters today. Yeah. So the list that we've been up, I mean, this specific list was, I think, first made in 2003. It was updated in 2012. But, you know, this more or less the DNA of Rolling Stone magazine, which you know, has always said that Exile on Main Street, Clash's London Calling, Sgt. Pepper, like that these are the canonical texts of pop music now has room for the SZA album from a couple of years ago. Sure. Yeah. And it's kind of head spinning. It's interesting. I, I guess the thing I want to ask you, because I don't really know, uh, before we get into the specifics of how they shook it out, do you think projects like this have cultural currency anymore? Because the thing is, you know, a, a couple of years ago, our good friend Chuck Klosterman wrote this book, What If We're Wrong? And I know you just did an excellent podcast series with Chuck called Music Exists. But one of the things in What If We're Wrong, we should sort of asking these questions that, you know, pe only people at Chuck at bars at 10.30 p.m. ask. It's like every single thing about our existence, basically, in terms of as, as thinkers, as appreciators of pop culture, and even as podcasters, for a while was defined by certain bedrock things. And one of them, because of the exact time, really, I think the exact time when we grew up and came of age as fans, was that rock and roll mattered. Rock and roll was a defining thing, that rock yeah. and roll was always going to be the cultural currency of youth. And, you know, in, even when you folded in hip hop and R&B and called you know, the artists in those genres, rock stars too, that it was all kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, I know, I don't know if that's really the case anymore. And so does a project like this that attempts to find common ground between the Lauren Hill album and Marvin Gaye and Radiohead and Biggie, I mean, does it, does it have any, does it, does it connect? Is it well, speaking I think to lists anything like this, Lists like this are very popular because people like to argue not only about um, the inclusion of things, but the placement of things. And right. so even, even just its existence is a success in some ways. Uh, we've had some experience doing that on the site over at The Ringer. I was just revisiting our uh, 100 best episodes of, uh, mm -hmm. of the Century list that we did. And... I remember the conversations around that list, you know, some of it was 
exactly the kind of backroom stuff that you expect, which is people who had personal passion project that they were making really strong cases for. There was also um, a lot of like wanting to make the list feel real and interesting while also not wanting to make it feel like a troll job. So given the parameters that we put around that list and looking at this Rolling Stone list, you can see that they want to make it so that it's not inevitably like you open this up and you're like, okay, so which Beatles record are you putting at number one? And it's like you look mm-hmm. and Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is given the number one ranking. So mm-hmm. I, I don't remember whether that was the case in earlier iterations of this list, but I certainly it, it don't was, think it was so. Not. It was um, not. And by that same token, for as much as they have kind of maybe started to tilt the axis of saying like this Motown record by Marvin Gaye is actually now takes the top spot over Bob Dylan, over the Beatles, over the Beach Boys. If you look at the list, there's only two records from the 21st century represented. It's uh, Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. and mean in the top 20? In the top 20. Top, top. In yeah, the top yeah. 20. And it's Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and uh, Kendrick Lamar and Radiohead. So I guess that's three in the 21st century. But then, you know, for the most part, they take care of all of the classic touchstones in that top 20. With the addition of people, you know, like of, of people like records like Miseducation of Lauren Hill. So it's such a balance. I mean, they took on a really, really, really big task. I think it's a really interesting list. I was talking, it's come up a couple of times, but I was talking with Donsky a little bit, Sam Donsky, our, our ex ringer writer and our friend of the show. And he and I were joking about doing our own lists that were personal canons. Mm. And I hope that this kind of list spurs people to do stuff like that. Um, because I think that that's like the best possible reaction is to sort of one way to, to receive something like this is to be like these fucking old guys are telling me like that that this record still matters, but I'm telling you that that this burial record is more important than all of it. You know what I mean? Or that this record that came out three weeks ago is just as valid as Pet Sounds, and that's that's actually true. You know what I mean? I've learned that that is actually true. Yeah. I think it's important if you love music to learn about music and to learn about where the music you love from like where it comes from. But what I hope it happens is that people start to like make canons of their own and make, make their own sort of like lists. Because I think sometimes I know that it seems crazy to say we don't have enough lists anymore, but I I would love to see people kind of take on this project as a, as a personal reflection rather than sort of like an institutional, like we're telling you that this is the right list. Yeah, and I I completely agree with the idea that in it their best the best version of lists like this are educational and something that is worth noting and worth admiring about the Rolling Stone list as currently constituted. You know, is that it has things in there now like uh, if you're if you're like deep in the four hundreds where things are interesting, you'll find like Bell and Sebastian and Laura Nero and Daddy Yankee and Selena and things that matter deeply to passionate fans about music and also hugely inform current artists, current singles, sounds that people are in love with at the moment. And, you know, that connective thread is something that mattered a lot to us in our cultural educations. And I think are, you know, increasingly fraying. Mm -hmm. So this idea that there's a big tent where all of this greatness can be found and people can make their own path through it is really, really valid. Uh, Maybe more so, um, maybe more so than ever. I, I, think that the difference for me in uh, between a list like this and a list like the ringers episode list and not specifically because it was something that the ringer did but tv episodes right now are 
extremely valid cultural currency. You know what I mean? Like that's what people watch. That's what people consume. Um, that's what people talk about in the, in the public spheres. Not that we have them anymore, but whatever count in the zoom rooms, let's say. I don't know if albums are, you know, I just, I just don't know. And, and, and part of that is the rise of genres that probably just sometimes do their best work in singles or EPs, uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the classic full length LP. Sure. Part of that is the rise of streaming services where people can just grab what they want, make their own playlists or whatever. But when I see, you know, like a Kid Cudi album on there, for example, I think that early period Kid Cudi, like a decade ago, has an undeniable influence on the hip hop music of this moment. But is that individual album better than 13th Floor Elevators? I don't know, whatever the hell else is down sure. there in the, in the early 400s. I'm not sure anymore. I just don't know if if album is the thing that people are talking about. So so secret. So to me, it's like not even the top ten or twenty isn't really worth arguing so much as the actual, you know, almost the existential idea behind the list. I, I think I'm looking at this now, and like everything in the top fifteen is pretty unimpeachable. Although I think the Lauren Hill album is pretty wildly overrated to be to be honest wow but i do as an album like when's the last time you fired up that whole album and played it all the way through i don't know i don't, I don't know when the last time i listened to i don't know Blue. it has five I, or I, six I, classic songs on do it, you listen to pet sounds i i have <laughs> yeah me too i mean but like do you are that's what the, the thing that if i was being a little bit of a shit about it i would just be like Actually, no one really like jams pet sounds. Like no one listens to pet sounds. I think you like. Well, I don't think anyone jams Sergeant it. Pepper's anymore. Do they? Like, I don't know. I, I, Kaya, do you, you listen to the Beatles? Let's ask Kaya. Wow, I knew this was coming. Yeah, I listen to the Beatles. <laughs> but do you listen to them in the same passive? Like we all know all their albums, and like when they come on, that's great. Or are you ever like it's Tuesday? It is time to just let. Rubber Soul Cook. Yeah, are you an album-specific listener? No, but I have a few Beatles songs in my liked Spotify playlist. There it is, yeah. which is great. It's great that, I mean, that is truly, and, and, it's, and it's a testament to like how canny I think Rolling Stone was with, you know, canonizing certain things. That's probably the truest sign of of enduring greatness. If instead of saying like, Exile on Main Street is the most important rock album of all time because of this battered LP that I inherited from my mom's deadbeat brother. But in fact, the fa but it, rather the Tumbling Dice has moved with me from burned CDs to Napster or whatever to playlists on Spotify. Like that's 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 part of that. That's interesting to me. Um, but I guess you know, and, and we can move on at this point. But I think one of the things that I I struggle with is. And, and this is probably why we don't talk about music that much anymore is, like I said a moment ago, this podcast partly exists because TV became the thing that people talked about culturally at a certain time in, in line with the internet. And we found a, a way, we enjoyed, you know, surfing on that particular wave. Sure. Yeah. And that happened at the same time that the ways that you and I talked about music, along with the ways that we talked about it with our friend group, which is all we used to talk about, um, started to splinter and decrease. Mm -hmm. And so every time you see something like this, it's, I think my reaction is kind of like, it, it's like seeing a, a beautifully intricate ship in a bottle. You know, I'm like, I, I admire it and it makes my heart sore at the thought of it on the open seas, but I but don't. But is it, is it like seeing a list of the 500 greatest oil paintings? Yes. 
Can you send me that list? That sounds very <laughs> soothing. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. But the, but the last thing to say is these lists should be fluid. They should be alive. And it's great that, I mean, you, if, if anyone is naysaying this list, they'd be like, oh, well, Marvin Gaye's saying what's going on is number one, because that is literally the question that everyone in America asks when they wake up in the morning in 2020. But that's good. That's why it should be number one right now. Sure. You know, and, 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 and hopefully, hopefully if they redid the list, uh, you know, maybe around March, the number one album will be Nevermind, because that's what we'll say <laughs> about all our fears about the erosion of civil liberties. Or and about the, the continuation of, of life on this planet. Right. <laughs> Never mind. Right. Yeah. Okay. Or, or Chris, honestly, you know, as a, as a Jewish American, born to run. Born to run really <laughs> is resonating in a different way. I don't know why days. I'm laughing so hard. You just really nailed that joke. Jesus. Uh, I want to, before we get into third day, here's some positive news. Okay. For, every, for everybody out there. Uh, one of the most beloved shows in the history of, of Hollywood Perspectives and the, and the Watch has been Steven Soderbergh's The Nick. It yeah. was the story of a coke-addled <laughs> surgeon. In it's a early, scrappy young doc. Early 20th century New York City, uh, working in a, a hospital in New York City and just kind of, kind of figuring it out as he went along. I would say a hospital that, like so many of our hospitals today, are severely lacking in PPE. Yes. Um, yes. You know, pretty, pretty, pretty gully. Uh, it was two seasons. Steven Soderbergh directed both seasons entirely, and I think did one of the most marvelous sort of filmmaking jobs of the last of last decade or so in terms of reprogramming at least for me how i watched stuff on television and also really asking serious questions about what you are used to and expect from even the most conventional scene of two people talking in a hallway you know and i think he really like awoke something in both me and andy with the with the the show and we were really hoping that it would continue on partially because at least rumor had it he had some really cool ideas about how to keep the show interesting moving forward. Now, there was the rumor, right, that he was going to, at the end of season two, going into season three, essentially create like a rep theater version of the Nick, but move the Nick around in time, right? So that they, whether it was a contemporary story or a 1970s story, it would always be set at this hospital in New York City, um, but that it, it was a malleable setting for a show going forward. Yes. And I think the statute of limitations on gossip has run out and we can say, I don't know if we ever actually said it before, but at this, I think, fairly significant for us Emmy party that we went to four yeah. years ago, right when I first moved here, that was the night when we uh, took a selfie in front of George R.R. R. Martin, thus <laughs> dooming the franchise. That's right. Somehow. That was why. Um, but also, we met we met our buddy Manzukas that night. Yeah. But also that night, I spoke to Andre Holland, who had been on the podcast uh, the year before, and asked him about the chance of a third season of The Nick. And he was very forthcoming and was like, yes, we have all the plans. That's yeah. the intention. Everything that you just said, Chris, he basically confirmed to us off the record then and saying that he, not all of the cast would carry on, but that he was looking forward to continuing to be a part of it. And then Cinemax basically got out of the um, original programming space almost entirely. Um, and 
the the will seemed to go out of the building. Um, not the building of the Nick, but at least in terms of uh, HBO. And yeah, and with somebody as prolific as Soderbergh, I'm I'm sure that like you know he had to move on and do other projects. He's obviously a guy who's capable of making upwards of two films a year, feature films a year, and he's I think he's got two in the can right now. Uh, so the timing wasn't right, and the the will wasn't there. But apparently, at least according to Soderbergh, who is speaking uh, in promo of the Quibi show that he's been executive producing called Wireless, which I've yet to check out, but I do want to. Uh, he was like. Andre Holland, uh, in conjunction with Barry Jenkins, is is in talks to revive the Nick, and they've got a plan. And the original uh, writers of the Nick itself are back on board, Jack Emil and, and Michael Be- Michael Begler, and they've written a pilot. And so it's like it's awesome. So, and the detail being that it would not be unstuck in time; that it would be Andre Holland continuing uh, Doctor Algernon Edwards, yeah, uh, who's, a, who's a doctor in the turn of the century, the right. last century. And it's really cool. I mean, it, the thing is about Soderbergh, we're, we're obviously harping on this because we just love this project. We love all the people involved. The thought of Barry Jenkins directing a season of TV starring on, starring Andre Holland, like, please, please take all of my money and please let life continue apace in this country so we can all enjoy it. Um, Soderbergh isn't an 800 pound gorilla in Hollywood. Um, you know, the sort of person who can just make projects happen um, through sheer power of his Q rating, but he does have this energy that seems to combat the natural inertia of this place. People might not know that the reason the Nick was on Cinemax was because it was like many, 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 many projects used to be in the development pipeline at HBO. Um, Clive Owen attached, cool script, Soderbergh directing, but HBO used to be infamous for its incredibly crowded pipeline and how they slow walked every project. So to be in development at HBO was absolutely a feather in your cap, but you may never get the rest of the outfit. And Soderbergh was like, that doesn't work for me. I am going to make the show. I'm going to direct all of it. And I've got a window in my schedule. So we're going to go. And they were like, okay, I guess we'll put it on Cinemax then, which kind of for a brief moment suggested Cinemax was going to take off as this alternative home for cool programming that didn't fully pan right. out. Right. But all of this is to say, if it was anyone else, I would be like, this is just, you know, it's not exactly clickbait, but it's like the kind of thing that, you know, those of us who are deep in the big picture Reddit boards would, would talk about for a long time and sure. maybe would never happen. But I kind of feel like they could just will this into being. And I say this, even though the Nick is not currently available to stream, for whatever godforsaken reason, I'm going to keep shouting it from the rooftops. Cinemax's very good original programming is not on HBO so, right. Max. Banshee and Banshee and Quarry and The Nick, three of the best shows of the last decade, full stop, are not available to stream on these networks' proprietary streaming service. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot more address. stuff about that. I saw a thread the other day. I can't remember who who was talking about it, but they were like. They were talking about a bunch of the international shows that they were looking for. I think they were mm-hmm. somebody was like, I'm trying to find like the future season, like the next couple of seasons of Gamora after the first two. And they were talking about a couple of other things. And they're just like, there's just we're starting to get some real gaps and some because of all the opening and closing of services and the different rights deals. And yeah. it, we're we're just gonna have a a big, big chunk of TV that dies in in digital purgatory. And yeah, it's 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 a really interesting story to keep your eye on. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely 
we'll be keeping my eye on yeah. the fate of a show that was created by a studio that owns a network and owns a streaming service. And yet somehow um, there's no way to stream it. I mean, I, you know, it could arbitrarily. be arbitrarily. Yeah, right. Arbitrarily. It's, it's, it's something that's totally cool. Worth noting that another piece that, of information that came out in this interview with Soderbergh, uh, I'm reading from the playlist. I think it was aggregated pretty, pretty widely is that they're, they're still in talks to do high flying bird part two. That's um, hilarious to me. Yeah. But you Higher know flying it, bird? That guy, I think that Soderbergh can just make shit happen in that way because he's him and because he works at a certain price point. And he's like, I can get things done efficiently and cheaply and keep it moving, you know? It's true. And it's it's not fair to... I mean, I could roll my eyes and say like High Flying Bird, which was a very entertaining Netflix film that he made with Andre Holland. But I, I don't think it was major anything. I mean, I don't think it was a major film for Soderbergh or a major film for Andre Holland. And I can roll my eyes and be like, this is just kind of director bullshit that they're going to do more of it. But it's different because as you said, he works at a speed and a scale that is just not comparable. So when I ding like an asshole, like a great filmmaker like Luca Guadagino. And I'm like, oh, you know, he he had six hours to give us this languorous, we are who we are. And it's wonderful that he can do it, but it's not for everyone. That's very different than Soderbergh being like, give me an iPhone 6 and Andre Holland and six hours in Midtown Manhattan and you're going to watch it. Yeah. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but they're just very different prospects. And it's, Yeah, they get to the, to the point, the, in the same point very differently. And just to try to put a bow on all of it, like that, his particular impatience with how the industry works is a tonic. It's really important right now because not just for COVID reasons, but we are trying, we are on this podcast commentating in real time on this kind of great slowing of TV as TV is basically becoming movies now. And not just because, you know, Black Widow might only end up on a streaming service if we never get back to theaters but because the deals are so much bigger now and the mm-hmm. stakes are bigger now and the and 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 the ip and the log lines and the stars and you know i think he brought the nick to tv because he was just like boom let's do it and right. you, you certainly couldn't do that now um and so more 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 quick filmmaking like that please uh let's talk about third day before we get to my interview with Catherine waterson this episode fucked me up um, just dark yeah yeah it was very dark so i think the one way we could open up talking about this is i was discussing this with you i was telling this to, to Catherine herself that i had gone into this show so cold like i didn't watch the trailer mm-hmm. knowing that i was very interested in in it just from its its logline and the people who were involved i tried to read as little as possible about it Me too i got you know the sense of how it was going to be rolled out but i didn't want to get that feeling like somebody might hit Jude Law in the head and put a bag over his head and leave him in a field. You know what I mean? Like I, I wanted to keep it kind of that, that keep that to be a surprise. And it makes the watching of TV while exciting and, and, and titillating, I guess for a show like this, it makes it way more fucking anxious because you kind of don't have that baked in feeling of, well, I know in the trailer that there are scenes that I haven't seen yet with Jude Law so I don't know. You know, I'm sure he's fine. Right. You know, um, I don't think he's fine. I, think I don't think fine he's, is doing a lot of work in that sentence. I, I don't think he's fine. I think yeah. if I had seen a trailer in which I saw Jude Law right. back in London at a garden center, you know what I mean, <laughs> doing right. whatever he's got to be doing, I would be like, oh yeah, well he's going to get out of this bag. Right. I don't know that. Uh, I didn't even watch scenes from next week if there were any, and you know this. 
this show I, I really just appreciate for creating its own logic and creating its own sense of reality. Even if it bends that reality, even if he puts people on acid and has them walking around forests and and everything like that, like it's just such a trip, man. And I, I know you watched it last night when you were a little tired. Did you enjoy the second episode? I think enjoy is is a tough word. I I I love this show. I love its project as you just described it. Um it as we said last week it's not for everyone and as it, as it turns out it is it's not a passive watch. I mean it's a 58 minute non-stop avalanche of sensory overload and it's not the right show to watch at 9:30. <laughs> on a on a Tuesday when you're feeling a little bit uh you're drifting off a little bit already. So my I wasn't as locked in as I would have liked to have been, but that's on me not on the show. I think one of the main differences between theater and television, let alone immersive theater and television, is that in theater there is no passive viewing even if it is a traditional, even if it's just like, you know, a a local rep production of Major Barbara because you bought your ticket and you're sitting in the space. And unless you're a total asshole, you're not going to get up in the middle or look at your phone. You are you are locked in. And this show demands that kind of full involvement and attention and I think deserves it. And I, the struggle was purely my own because I, I was kind of nodding, <laughs> nodding off and then would come to and being like, is that fish head moving? Right. So right. That, that was my failing with the second episode. I think the other thing that I the only other small criticism I would make is that fundamentally any piece of entertainment about someone stuck in a place where they shouldn't be is always going to have that moment where you're like come on dude there's just always going to be a come on dude moment you know where they could get out but they don't and so the work is of course to make it so compelling that you at least empathize with the character's decision not to yes get the, out the, the the second dead animal i see on the ground is usually like we should probably check into another hotel like that's that's Chris, my vibe the minute i have no bars yeah and i don't mean i don't mean as a right i mean i, I do am think gone. that they play like we said in the first time where it was playing on a particular kind of anxiety a kind of yeah. uh i am trying to escape the walls that i've built for myself right that even as scary and disturbing as that as oc is for for sam Right. I can understand why he doesn't go all the way back on the causeway. You know, I can understand why he comes, he turns back around. So taking acid in a potentially cult situation with strangers, yay or nay? Just young, young CR, not young. No, no yeah, but that's the thing. It's not young CR. It would be me yeah. today. And of course I would say no, but I haven't actually been offered. You know, I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> okay. I, haven't, I haven't had this situation pop up, so, so I can't say for sure. Go camping with Kaya. Uh, you secure the area from bears. Uh-huh. And then, you know, just 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 drop out, man. Is Kaya the cult leader in this case? No, I, I didn't mean to imply that Kaya was holding. I just mean <laughs> that I need a Kaya type person to make sure that there oh, are no yeah, apex you need, predators. You need a a guard, basically. I need I need I need defense. Um yeah, I mean it, part of the pleasure of the show is the way Sam as our POV character, the way his experience in letting go, giving up, giving in is comparable to our experience watching the show. Because if you are fighting this, 
if you are being like, this is what is even happening right now, this is preposterous, which I'm sure some people who are watching the show are feeling, mm-hmm. then it's, yeah, then it's not going to work. It, it's like playing an improv game and someone's just like, I'm a brain doctor. And you're like, no, you're not. You're Steve. Well, the game's over. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's you're a really actually right. But the improv is over. I was, I was thinking about that actually in regards to Ted Lasso as well. You know, I, I was thinking about how every show asks us to accept something, you know, whether yeah. it's this guy, no matter how frustrated he is and how boxed in he is by his life, would not jeopardize his own safety and his, his family by staying on this island, no matter how good the drugs are, no matter how free the pints are, no matter how electric his chemistry is with, with Catherine Watterson's character. There's just no way he stays. He just boogies the second he goes and sees the architect or the, the, the archaeologist who's just this guy with all these news clippings about him. That, that would just be like a real red flag for me personally. But it's the same thing with Ted Lasso where it's just like once you buy in. No, I'm saying I'm just like for every I, I, show. I'm only laughing because could someone please Photoshop the picture of Jude Law staring in horror at the news story about him with the Philadelphia Inquirer story about us hosting the Game of Thrones after show? <laughs> like I, I i would love that but please yeah. I, I i not only do i agree with what you're saying i hadn't put into words but that has been the experience i mean we we, we talked recently a lot about pilot fatigue because mm-hmm. we watch so many more pilots than we used to because there's so many more tv shows um or even just and, first episode of fatigue yeah right and and for for all of them and you know, not only have I been watching TV shows my whole life, but then thinking about them critically for a whole bunch of years and then trying to make them, I still resist the bridal, right? Like that mm-hmm. was what I was describing with the boys where I texted Chris and I was just like, yeah, 20 the minutes show, in. I'm out on it. Yeah. Less, yes, eight minutes in, 20 minutes in, I was in. Um, and, and that is absolutely part of it. And you, you, you buy the ticket, you got to go along with it. And everybody's mileage varies. Some people Subarus don't make it all the way across the causeway, and I and I get it. Um, that said, I'm. I think that my optimism about the show and about the project of the show is undimmed. Not that the, not that this episode was bad in any way, but it's particularly undimmed because of the nature of its delivery. That like we know. I mean, it's called the third day. We've seen two of the days. We got one more day coming, and then we're going to have a live theater intermission yeah and then naomi harris is the star of the show and there's a different director yep maybe i guess yeah Um, those two things are true i have no idea what that means for jude law and his character or how the show will look in the second batch of episodes or how it feels if it's a completely different show if it's a completely different reality uh you mentioned pov briefly one of the things that i want to step on my interview with Catherine, but like we talked a lot about how careful they were to how much of the show is shot with with Sam's POV in mind? And how much of this, you know, mm-hmm. how much of it is seen from across a parking lot, Sam seeing somebody, or when he sees Catherine Watterson's character approaching, it's seeing her from his eyes rather than hers, you know? I think that that contributes a lot to the overall vibe of the show. So we can we can leave it there. I think I think I have one more question. I for think you we'll know a lot more I, after the third episode of the third day. I do want your your specific POV to this. Like in that moment when like Chuck and Cara Monica, whoever else was carrying you out of the hi-fi bar on your birthday, uh-huh. what if blocking the entrance to hi-fi bar were Emily Watson and Patty Considine saying, Chris, you have to come with us. They're coming to kill you. Like 
what would that have done to your vibe in that moment? Because I'm trying to think I of mean, a worst I, case I, scenario to like, yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm in for the night, like whether I'm going to have an extra drink or go on no, some no, sort of drug see, trip. And then the more it's way more something like that. Mm-hmm. What they say to him. Mm-hmm. Let's just be honest. Is just not what you want when you're on psychedelic hallucinogenic. Drugs. Yes, that's that's what I'm getting. I was at. not on those during my 23rd birthday. I just had a lot of Jägermeister. But right. if I were on acid or mushrooms or something like that, were that to be something that would happen? Yeah. You just don't want to hear that. And Chris, I'll end with this. The reason why I don't do those things is because I live my life where every day I assume Patty Considine is waiting outside the next door to tell me that they're on their way to kill me. Like, I just assume that that's a plausible scenario and thus have not tuned in or dropped out. Because inevitably, <laughs> yeah. inevitably, the star of the groundbreaking dogma film Breaking the Waves is <laughs> waiting for me, wearing a tasteful cardigan, saying, quickly, into the woods. Yes. You know, metaphorically or no, I just think that that seems it's like a plausible about to scenario. Happen. I'm so jealous you talked to Catherine Waterston. I, I, I can't wait to hear this. She was dynamite. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back on Monday, but stay tuned for my interview with Catherine Watterson from the third day after the break. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heineken. Heineken would like to remind you that it's time for seasonal beers again. That's right. If you thought a cold, crisp Heineken was something... Just wait until you taste the Heineken fall lineup or autumn, depending on your zip code. Is it a new product? No, just the same great tasting lager that's perfect for any season. So now that it's getting a little colder outside, uh, you know, we're, we're all bundled up inside waiting for winter to come. And we're watching tons of TV. We're watching tons of sports. Why not just crack open a Heineken when you got like your chips and dip there? It's the perfect complement to whatever TV experience you're having. Heineken Original Lager is made with pure malt and their famous A-Yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Pick up a pack or get it delivered, whatever your style, and drink responsibly. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the FX Original Series Fargo. Family is complicated. Crime is organized. With a brand new cast featuring Chris Rock and Jason Schwartzman, FX's Emmy and Golden Globe winning series from creator Noah Hawley returns with an all-new installment that explores the complexities of immigration, assimilation, power, and what it means to pursue the American dream. Set in 1950s Kansas City, the new installment of Fargo tells the original tale of two criminal syndicates that control an alternate economy of exploitation, corruption, and drugs, striking an unusual peace. To cement their truce, the heads of the black crime family and Italian mafia agree to a unique gesture of faith trading of their youngest sons. But will the agreement last as the tension between the two warring families escalates? Fargo premieres with back-to-back episodes September 27th at 9pm on FX and streams the next day FX on Hulu. I'm so excited to be joined by Catherine Watterson. Andy and I have been really, really into the third day. It kind of came out of nowhere for us. I... I almost like it's we're doing this interview because I have very willfully not read a lot about it. Because as soon as I yeah. saw the first episode, I was so taken aback by it that I was like, I, I don't want to like, you know, cloud too much of, of what's going to happen. Not even like plot wise, but just I know it has like a very unique structure. But how yeah. did you sort of get introduced to this project? Is it something that Dennis Kelly came to you with or? 
Mark Munden came to me with it. I don't really, I guess you never really know exactly how, you know, where those kind of back room conversations are that get you into a show. I don't know if Jude had anything to say about it or any, I, I really don't know. I just, uh, yeah, I, I got on a call with Mark after, after I read it. And as these things often go, I just left England to go visit family in America. And as I was boarding the plane, they were sort of saying, eh, we don't get on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> this show is about to happen. And, you know, I, I was getting on a plane with my kid. And so I actually called my partner and I just said, will you read this? Because I'm going to be on the plane. There's no way I'm going to be able to read it in the next few hours. So when I landed, I had this review of the script that was very positive. And then I managed to read it and got on the phone with Mark and I just really liked him right away. I mean, that's, that's so much about what all of this is, you know, the process of deciding what to do is about, is obviously about the script. It's also about you excited to work with these people. You think that they're good, decent human beings. It'd be nice to spend an obscene amount of time with, you know, cause these shows take a long time, you know, they, yeah. take, they take up, you know, they're long days and sometimes quite grueling days. And, you know, you just want to do that work with people that, you know, you respect and are excited by. So I just liked Mark so much right away. And that, that had a lot to do with why I ultimately decided to do the show. But also I think the, the live event so intrigued me just working in these different mediums and like just actually kind of wanted to be able to see behind that particular curtain. How are they going to do it? It's so harebrained. And I think actually COVID has led us to the best version of the live event because originally it was going to be like a couple thousand people who would get tickets and they would get to witness this thing that Jude and I were going to be a part of with the punch drunk company. And now it's going to be much more accessible because we're, we couldn't have 2000 people there on the Island with us. So, so now we're, we're doing a live streaming event and we're going to perform for 12 hours nonstop. And I mean, that probably sounds like hell to most people, but I'm really excited by that challenge. And so, yeah, so that was so, so attractive to me from the very beginning, just how they were going to work that in, what it was going to be, how are people going to respond to it? And just, you know, this is like the new frontier of television right now, right? Like, It, it does seem like this is like a perfect hybrid of cinema, TV, and theater. Right, right. Well, but it's also what TV is um, open to right now. It's yeah. the place for this kind of experimentation and it feels quite limitless right now. So that's really exciting to be a part of. So Mark is a guy, I was going to ask you about this later, but Andy and I just got done, My the guy who I do the podcast with, we've, we talked mm-hmm. about I May Destroy You like pretty much every week that it was on. And when it first came out, we were like, this is, who is this? You know, Michaela Cole's obviously this amazing genius but who is this also this director who keeps getting credit with these episodes this guy sam miller he must be this young new dynamic and it's like an old british guy not not, like he's just like but and and with mark i watched the first two episodes and my wife and i we watched episode two last night and we were honestly who's this punk (laughs) i was like is this who's this new carrie fukunaga like absolute punk rock you know i was blown away and then i'm like yeah. Oh, he, he worked with Mike Lee. He worked with he worked with right. like Derek Jarman. He's been around for a while. Can what's yeah. he like on set? What's his style like? I mean, what what was it like to work with him once you guys were finally rolling? 
He's so great to work with. And he's kind of a mix of things that you don't always find in the same person. Like he loves to rehearse. He's also, uh, obviously the show uh, speaks for itself. I don't have to really, I, I think, articulate this to anybody who's even seen the trailer. Is He's incredibly visual as well. And he has a little notebook and he storyboards himself and he has it all mapped out in this little notebook with, that he has already in, at the beginning when we're in rehearsal. So he's often referring to things that kind of happened unexpectedly in rehearsals once we're on set. And it's kind of like this, uh, I don't know, it's this, the, that little book sort of captures all of that, that spontaneous stuff that can be so useful in rehearsal that, you know, two weeks later as the sun's setting and you're in a hurry, you've kind of forgotten that you found. So it was very um, grounding for all of us, not just for Mark, I think, to have that notebook. We were always all looking at it, referring to it. And I'd never really worked with someone like that. Uh, Ridley, to a degree, kind of uh, invites the actors in to the visual he's trying to create which I think is incredibly helpful because sometimes you don't really know what they're after and you might be able to help a little yeah. in delivering that visual. So and he does um, a lot. Of, and didn't Ridley Scott do a lot of storyboarding beforehand too? Like a lot of that is already yeah, mapped out, right? Exactly, exactly. And I guess I used to think that storyboarding was useful for actors just to get kind of a feel like the mood or something, but actually it's really helpful in terms of, okay, this shot is a close up, but we need to get this little detail, this in the background. And, you know, yeah, um, it's actually, it's much more useful on a, on a technical level, but yeah. So Mark has that side of him that's quite technical. And then he's also, yeah, he's very loose and playful, which is maybe why I wonder if why you thought, Maybe why he thought he was a younger man, but he's not that old. Come on, he's, <laughs> he's no, got I know. years and years ahead. When yeah. when you're, well, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to watch the episodes recently or or anything, but I haven't watched it at all. Actually, you haven't watched it at all. Okay, well, mm-hmm. I'll be the first to tell you. Um, there are all these really amazing shots, especially there's a few scenes that specifically ones that you're in where. He's doing a lot of stuff with focus, you know, whether or not or focus oh, and on the also, beach. I remember when we were shooting. Yeah, and mm-hmm. what kind of relationship do you have when it comes to how you're calibrating your performance to what a director is going for visually? Like, are you thinking about that? Is it anywhere in your brain while you're doing a scene, while you're preparing for a scene? Mm. Where you're like, I know what this person is going for visually, so that's going to mean this to mm. me. Mm. Such a good question. Um, it's such a balance, isn't it? Right? Because you want to be so free on the day. You don't want to be really thinking about anything. I'm not trying to manipulate my performance. I, I don't want to think about my performance. I want to know the line so well that that isn't um, something that is forced. I want to relax myself enough that I don't uh, feel, I don't know, self-conscious. I want to feel free, right? On the mm-hmm. other hand, I want my performance to be recorded, not lost because I've put my head down and my hair is not pinned back. And so the whole thing is behind my hair and nobody gets it. So then what the hell's the point of being so free if nobody can see it, right? right. You know, so there's this strange contradiction at play always between 
um, freedom and control or um, being in a kind of active coma. I think that's some painter. I, I, I can never, I can't actually, I did try to find, I read this once. A painter described his his creative state as being in an like something like an active coma, but I I, I googled it. I can't find who I can't find who I can't credit the artist. Um, but yeah, something like being between that place of being in a kind of active coma where you are participating but unselfconscious. Well, I was this is sort of a, a partner question to that, which was you know. I feel from watching these first few episodes, partially because of the way I think the character of Jess is shot and and sort of seen, that there is an element of mystery to her, and that there is something yeah. else to her that I have not learned in the second, the first two episodes. But your performance is very candid, like your performance. Like if you were just watching your performance in like a master shot with none of the out of focus or how she's sort of in the edge of a frame here and then emerges you would just kind of be like, that just seems like a woman who's doing a, an interesting research project on this island and et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, I, I, I guess think I, that was something Mark wanted, right? Yeah. Was that... Um, he was like, play it straight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Play it straight and the camera's a little bit drunk, right? Like, but you're sober, but the camera's drunk. Or not, I mean, that's the a no, that way makes to describe sense. it. But the camera is... Yeah, I suppose better than drunk would be to say the camera's a bit psychedelic. Its movements are odd, strange, sometimes really slow, um, land on the thing that would only be interested to somebody who dropped acid or something, you know, yeah. like that it's not exactly, it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's too hippie of a way of describing it, but like it's not a sober camera. No, and it, it's also, it, you, you start to feel a little bit like you imagine the characters feel being on that island because the, you know, like there's even right. like slight, like weird rotations right. of the frame and you're like, is mm. there an earthquake or something happening? Right. Like, but they're just chatting. Quite... Yeah. Right. Right. When you read through a script, specifically this one, when do you turn from Catherine, the reader to Catherine, the performer? Like, do you initially oh, go through and say, this is an interesting story that I want to get to the end of and keep turning the pages. And then you start thinking about executions for Jess, or do you immediately go to Jess on that first kind of pass? I really wish that I could read a script totally purely. If I know if I've been offered something, uh, and I know I have to decide, my job is at that moment is to decide whether I think I can do the part or bring something useful to the story. I can't read it purely. Like I just, it's the purest I'll ever get is that first read, you know, like that's the yeah. most I'll be on the ride of it and sort of I'm free of, of, I don't know, my working mind, I guess, but it's still, it's all, it happens from the first, from the first lines why is she saying that what is she doing what's her deal how yeah. do i can i do this do i have something to contribute here uh, that's, i can't that, i can't quiet that quest those questions that scenario that you described where you said your partner essentially gave you coverage of, of the script yeah. you, you, <laughs> does that does, does that happen ever is that ever happened before where you kind of have oh, like God, a, no. oh well, that's kind of interesting then that you kind no, of went that into was like the, a very particular case <laughs> of having a small child and like it was just like it was just realistic i knew i wouldn't i guess i was excited just from just seeing what the team was involved mm -hmm. and i 
And I would have, you know, if I'd been traveling alone, I would have read it, you know, I would have started reading it in, in the car on the way to the airport. But because I was with my kid, I just knew that that was not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, so I, yeah, I, I think probably above all, it wasn't simply, you know, to be as efficient as possible, but it was mostly just because I, I wanted a review from someone I trusted really quickly because I was excited about the project. What is it, Dennis, like? Because it, I was curious, it, he is sort of one of these British TV uh, auteurs that in, in yeah. the States, it's kind of, I think we do have like showrunners, but there's a, some, there, there's a little bit of like, he seems enigmatic to me, at least. I mean, when I've watched Utopia yeah. and they have an yeah. American adaptation coming of that, but yeah. this just seems to come, like this show just seems to have like emerged out of whole cloth. Like it doesn't seem like it was noted a lot. It doesn't seem like it went through this weird, uh, not corporate process, but like, it just feels like mm. very much like the people who made this knew exactly what they wanted. Is, is that an accurate mm. representation of it? Yeah, I think, I think he, uh, yeah, I think he and Felix and, and then Mark, I think that they'd been working on it and spitballing about what it could be for a very long time. So, yeah. So it's, it's interesting that like, I think actually they'd been working on it for a, a long time, like a decade, but it kind of came out of thin air when it all came together, like it all came together quite quickly. Um, uh, so yeah. So yeah. And he just, you know, like all the great writers I worked with, he just, you could tell the minute you meet him, like he can contain this, like he, the whole story is very accessible and detailed in his mind. And he has an answer for everything, you know, like you can't stump him with a question, yeah. you know, <laughs> about this world and how it works and what it should feel like. And I did have a lot of questions for him. It's quite difficult for me to talk about this show. And it's really honestly pretty frustrating because there's so many things I want to talk about, about what it was like to work on it, that just reveal things yeah. I don't want to reveal. It's frustrating for me because like I, I'm watching it <laughs> one at a time and yeah. I was tempted to go way ahead, but I, I didn't want to because I just felt like it was yeah. really kind of cool the way it was sort of going to play out. Yeah. 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 And I think that I think that you have the right read on it. I think that's how it should be watched. But uh, yeah, so so I did anyway. I can't tell you exactly what, but I I did have a lot of questions for him. And he he's just such a beautiful writer and such a generous person. So I get these like, long emails back from just quite basic, uh, questions. And I loved it. I loved that exchange, you know, uh, it's such a privilege to get access to a writer like that when you're working on something, jobs aren't always set up that way where you have easy access to the writers. And it was really, really helpful to me, um, on a few things that I was a little bit stuck on about what to reveal about Jess and when, Mm -hmm. uh, even saying that, I feel like I said too much. Um, but you know, uh, yeah. So, so I, yeah. So I, I love working with him, and he's a, he's a playwright first, so he he gets it. Yeah, he, I felt like he gets it when actors get nerdy about their characters and what makes them tick. I would imagine that one of the most, if not truly unique, ex parts of this experience are that usually you have a character. I guess in Fantastic Beasts you've returned to a character, but usually you would have a character. It goes out into the world, and you're done with it, and the audience is enjoying it. But this is the strange thing where you are going to get to, I, if I understand this correctly, mm. revisit slash revive this person while we're all kind of 
taking her in for the first time. I mean, I don't even think I can remember a time when something like that has happened that isn't just a franchise where like I'm watching three or four episodes and then that the performer gets to come back to the role almost. Right. Yeah. I don't, I I can't, I mean, I don't know if anything like this has ever exactly happened before. I think people have been like, wouldn't it be cool if we did, you know, the Dark Tower as a TV show and a movie and then a TV show. At the but same like, time, right. I've, I've never seen something where it's like, there's going to be a play in the middle of this TV yeah. season. Well, I mean, this is why I haven't watched the show because yeah. I just, you know, and I guess this come, kind of circles back to the question you asked earlier about how much do you want to know what the filmmaker is trying to do? Because like, you know, I want to help the filmmaker. It's his or her thing. Right. So, uh, it's not my thing. It's not my baby. I didn't work on it for 10 years. I want to serve them. So, uh, sometimes you serve them by having a really good understanding of, of what they're after, but also sometimes you serve them by kind of being free from that and bringing yourself to it. And then they, (laughs) they deal with that. They deal with what you bring to it. Right. So I don't know. I just, I just felt I got, had some sense of it, obviously, from reading it, talking to Mark, rehearsing with him, looking at his storyboards, um, and a little sense of it, too, from the posters and trailer, like just the sort of texture of the thing. And I just felt like I couldn't go further. I didn't want to... I just wondered. It's a superstition, a paranoia, but mm-hmm. I just was worried if it would influence my performance of the character in a way that would make her inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at least you're just dealing with your reality. Yeah. Yeah. But season to season on TV shows where presumably people do watch yeah. the previous seasons. Like I never thought, Oh boy, <laughs> someone really got derailed by watching themselves, you know, but I just have a paranoia about it. So, Oh, but I do think that there are sometimes on TV where you can see characters become or at, or performers become self-conscious about the way people are responding to their characters to the extent where they're actually like putting that forward a little bit. Okay. So then then good. Then my paranoia is, is, is smart because this thing, the thing we'll do on October 3rd is going to fall between the first three episodes and the next three, the final three episodes. So it should feel, it should feel really streamlined. I think. Yeah. Anyway, would you, would you, it, it, as as yourself as like a watcher would is are mm. you the kind of person who would want to watch all six hours of this basically in a weekend or at once or are you would you want this to kind of drip out over the course of weeks you know like it, in terms of your own tv consumption oh man yeah I'm, i mean i'm not a binge watcher no <laughs> i just uh i just can't stay awake it's <laughs> just playing so i just cannot I, I'm like the antithesis of a binge watcher. I like, I will watch half an episode. <laughs> go to sleep. Um, I don't know if that would be true for this show because I think it's quite intense and I don't know that I'd be able to necessarily pass out in the middle, but that is my problem. I mean, it took me like, it took me like, I don't know, four months to watch the Michael Jordan documentary. Which really? Like, <laughs> but it just took me so long because I just can't, yeah, I just can't stay awake after dark. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I mean, but what I loved about what you said at the beginning of, of this conversation is that you had this, you know, this impulse, uh, instinct to not read about it and just like have the experience. I think that, again, without having seen the show, though, 
I can't speak from experience, but I think it's the right way to go to just, you know, it was created by, you know, by the punch drunk folks. Yeah. And Felix is a master of creating these, uh, immersive, ex- uh, you know, visual and, uh, experiences. And again, I haven't seen the show, but I imagine that there's some crossover there from his, his theatrical experiences and the, and, and this, uh, television experience. So so I think it would probably be right to just like let it work on you, let it, let it kind of. Oh, I don't know. I actually I feel like I'm contradicting myself. If you really wanted the punch drunk experience, you'd probably binge it and just go full immersion <laughs> sure. with some surround sound in a very dark room and freak yourself out. But either way, um, I think it's better to like. I, I feel like there's a lot, especially since I've been home for months. Uh, I'm just like burning through stuff. I guess I'm the opposite of you. Like, you know, like I've, I've just been burning through shows. I watched, I watched last dance very quickly and (laughs) there's something that made this show that made like, and there's been a couple of that have happened over the, you know, in the last couple months, but this show definitely made me stop in my tracks. Like it was very much like, Mm. I want to, I want to like prolong this experience a little bit. As long as I, Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's like a good book. You don't, you don't, when you get the feeling that it's a good one, you'd like slow down a little bit. Yeah. Especially as you get, as you get towards the end. So it's, it's, it's an awesome, awesome piece of work. Thanks so much for, uh, for being part of making it. No, it was fun. It was fun making it. It It's fun talking to you about it. Yeah. In the way, the limited way that I can. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today, Catherine. Have a good day. Thanks. You too, Chris. Bye. Take care.